Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, above all things in this world, you have demonstrated your love for us by your willingness to send Jesus to be the sacrifice, to be the redeemer, to be our savior, to be our healer. God, we just thank you for that. And <clears throat> Lord, more than that, we pray that we would be able to live up to the calling that you have for us. Father, the gift of life that we receive comes with us following you. Lord, you are the path to that health, to that life, to that perfection, to that abundance that we want so much in our lives. And Lord, it doesn't come by wishing upon a star. It doesn't come by getting material possessions. It doesn't come by uh, looking good in the eyes of other people. Father, it only comes by following you. And Lord, we pray that we might be able to do that, that we might be able to follow you even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's unpopular, even when it doesn't gel with our master plan for our lives. Father, one of the ways that we can do that this morning is just to be able to go to you and ask for forgiveness for any sin or struggle or issue that's in our lives. We're just going to take a moment right now to do just that. So just quietly to ourselves, we can just ask forgiveness. Father, may we turn away from doing things and not doing the things that you want us to do. Father, may we turn away from it, Lord, and embrace you. Lord, may you constantly build in us a desire to do what is right and what is good and what you've called us to do. Father, we thank you that you have loved us enough that you have called us in this way. Father, we thank you that you have loved us enough that you want us to follow you, that you care passionately whether we follow you or not. Father, we're just going to ask this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts, into our lives, Father, to enable that call to be a reality. Father, we just thank you for being here, worshiping with us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep going. that's my problem because oh wait no it's no, not I, my I problem really, i don't know what else i can do because if i do something right it's unacknowledged she doesn't even say thank you but if i do something wrong she is vicious so quit what quit what? i can get another girl to take your job in five minutes one who really wants it but i know I, I don't want to quit that's not fair but I, you know, I'm just saying that I would just like a little credit for the fact that I'm killing myself trying. Ugh, Andy, be serious. You are not trying. You are whining. What is it that you want me to say to you, huh? Do you want me to say, poor you, Miranda's picking on you, poor you, poor Andy? Hmm? Wake up, Six. She's just doing her job. 
Don't you know that you were working at the place that published some of the greatest artists of the century? Halston, Lagerfeld, De La Renta. And what they did, what they created, was greater than art. Because you live your life in it. Well, not you, obviously, but some people. You think this is just a magazine? Hmm? This is not just a magazine. This is a shining beacon of hope for... Oh, I don't know. Let's say a young boy growing up in Rhode Island with six brothers pretending to go to soccer practice when he was really going to sewing class and reading Runway under the covers at night with a flashlight. You have no idea how many legends have walked these halls. And what's worse, you don't care. Because this place where so many people would die to work, you only deign to work. And you want to know why she doesn't kiss you on the forehead and give you a gold star on your homework at the end of the day. Wake up, sweetheart. You know, um, even though this movie is a lot about materialism, the point there is well taken. Because in the movie clip, you know, the young girl goes to work in New York City and she acts as if everyone should cater to herself rather than her actually working to her best to cater to the business that she is trying to break into. And the problem is, or the parallel with us today, is that many of us who sit in church, the average Christian uh, in America, as the guy says, you know, we uh, are in a faith where there are people who would be willing to die for that faith, but many of us who sit in churches today only deign to be a part of that faith meaning that we only sort of subscribe to the faith if it's okay, if it fits within our schedule. So here's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. We're going to ask this question. We're going to ask what it's like to not be lukewarm. We're going to ask what it's like to go from good to great. And so we're going to be looking at this over the next couple of weeks, probably four or five weeks, of what it means to go from good to great. With apologies to Jim Collins, for those of you who have read that book, we're not going to be talking about Jim Collins, okay? Uh, that's a best-selling book, by the way. That's where the title came from. Uh, we're not going to be talking about that. What we're going to be talking about is our four-week series of not being lukewarm. So I think the challenge is we're going to talk about today, we're going to, this week, um, even though it says our four-week series, I think I'm going to go five weeks if I can fit it in, because this week I just want to spend time defining what it means to be lukewarm talking about what a lukewarm Christian is, talking about those of us who live, especially in the West, live here in San Jose, in the Bay Area, who are surrounded by affluence and who yet, at the same time, they approach God sort of the same way that girl did in the movie clip, right? Um, they approach God as if, you know, it's somehow a blessing to God for us to show up and do an occasional thing, and then we pat ourselves on the back. So, we're going to be talking about this, not being lukewarm. This is our new series uh, for January. Or you could also say, um, for those of you who have read Jim Collins' book, how good is the enemy of great and lukewarm is the enemy of hot. We don't want to be just good Christians. We want to be great Christians. We don't want to be, actually, Christian is not even the right word. That puts us in the wrong. Let me just say that again. We don't want to just be good followers of Jesus, good disciples. We want to be great disciples of Jesus. We don't want to be lukewarm disciples of Jesus. We want to be hot disciples of Jesus, or cold, as we're going to talk about this morning. So here's our strategy. 
Our strategy is this. Is today we're going to be talking about warming up, right? We're going to get the blood flowing. We're going to get our service going. We're going to get our life to be more reflective of what Jesus wants us to be in our lives. All right, we're going to look and see what the Bible says. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, um, verses 14 through 20. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, um, that would be awesome because we're going to be looking back at it a couple times. In fact, I'm going to turn there myself. Revelation chapter 3, um, verses 14 through 20. Let's get there. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 20. Now, here's the thing. We're only going to spend one week in Revelation, and uh, we're going to do it because, let me just give you a little bit of background so that you are not like, wow, pastor speaking from Revelation, are we going to talk about, you know, the end times or something like that? Well, Revelation actually is a book that actually is comprised of several different books or sections, if you will. And one of the first sections of Revelation are simply letters to churches, which basically sort of describe some of the spiritual conditions that people will face. It is important that as we do Revelation 3, that because it's been, well, because we hear it a lot of times quoted in our culture and misquoted, it's not necessarily talking about the American church or the Western church or this, that, or the other. It is just a general statement that we as followers of Christ want to avoid some of these issues that will strike us as we seek to be better followers of Jesus. Okay, so Let's look at Revelation 3, uh, starting in verse 14. This is the message from Jesus. And then there's a big, long description about Jesus, just for the sake of discussion. This is the message from Jesus. I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. Now this, by the way, let me just say, this was written to, quote-unquote, the church in Laodicea. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about what that means in a minute. I wish that you were one or the other, either hot or cold. But since you are lukewarm, like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, meaning the church in Laodicea says, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you, you the church in Laodicea, don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, right? Which is not a good thing to be, okay? So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Now, this is, it's, this is a... Uh, misunderstood passage. We're going to break it down here, but it's got something good to say to us as we begin 2010. All right, three ideas. If you want to follow along in your handout, did Addy get the handouts? Are they there or not in the bowl? Yes. Okay, great. Awesome. So if you want to follow along, you're welcome to do that. First idea we're going to talk about this morning is that we must fully commit to God. That the problem with the Laodiceans and actually the problem with all of the seven churches, for the most part, in this section of Revelation is a lack of commitment, but specifically the Laodiceans here had a real struggle with commitment, and the reason is, is because they lived in the, one of the most affluent parts of the Roman world at the time, right? Now, is that related to us or not related to us? Let's just be honest here at the outset. Do we live in one of the most affluent parts of the world, even if you yourself are not affluent? 
Do we live in one of the richest parts of the world even if we are not rich ourselves? Yes, we do. Okay, and by the way, that's the same struggle that the Laodiceans have. So let's talk about this. We must fully commit to God. Here in 2010, uh, we talked last week at the State of the Church Address about a need to fully trust God, fully commit God, fully commit our lives to God in every way. And this is what we're going to be talking about over the next couple of weeks because God desires for us to be fully committed to Him. When we become a believer, when we become a follower of Jesus, when we get baptized and put on the wedding ring that symbolizes an outward expression of our commitment of faith, when we do those things, then God expects us to act and live our lives as if we are followers of Him. Let me just give an example. If you get married... And on your wedding day, your spouse, be it the guy or the gal, is beautiful. They say their vows. They commit their lives to you. And then the next day, they say, hey, uh, honey, um, I'm going to be gone next week because I'm going to go to uh, Sandals Resort down in, you know, uh, Cancun or wherever it is. I don't even know where it is. And uh, I'm going to party with some friends, uh, you know, guys, gals, whatever. Uh, You don't have a problem with that, right? Well, of course, we would have a problem with it. We'd say, wait a minute, you, you, you just, we just got married. You committed your life to me. Doesn't your wedding ring, doesn't your wedding vows mean anything? And the whole point of the Bible, <coughs> by the way, if you've not read it, is, is this very thing. If you look from Genesis to Revelation, it is God always saying, listen, I love you. You are my betrothed. Why have you left me? Why are you not fully committed to me? Right? And so if we want to be able to experience the plan that God has for our lives, we have to be fully committed to Him. This is the thing a lot of Christians don't understand. A lot of Christians are happy just to do the minimum, just to do the limited part. They give some money to some TV preacher. They come to church on occasion. They, they read their Bible on occasion. They pray on occasion. And they can't understand why God isn't blessing them. That's why. Right there. That's, that's exactly why God is not blessing them. So, we need to talk about what this full commitment is. The problem in Laodicea was not beliefs, but actions. Now, here's the interesting thing about Laodicea, because as Protestant churches go, a lot of times, us who exist and worship in a Bible-teaching church, we are very good at making sure our beliefs are right. Right? I mean, if I were to espouse a non-orthodox belief this morning, if I were to say something radical, heretical, not radical like do something with your life, but radical like, you know, Jesus really was the alien who came down in the mothership, you guys would rightfully be upset, you know? You'd be like, we got to take care of this. There are other churches in America, by the way, where I could say that and no one would bat an eye. I mean, they might feel weird by it, but they're not going to bat an eye. Okay, Um, There are churches where playing with the Bible doesn't really matter. What matters is the fact that you give money, you do stuff. Okay, We're not in that tradition. We don't have time to critique the other traditions. But in our tradition, we want to make sure that the Bible is front and center and that we are good in what we believe, that what we believe is as accurate as possible. However, our tradition is also susceptible to something else, which is what? The weakness of our tradition, if you will, is the fact that it's easy for us to come to church, feel that we have the right doctrine, the right beliefs, that we are biblically accurate, 
that we have read about archaeology and we have read about the, you know, how the scripture is accurate and true and real and valid. We have put it to the test in our lives. And we just are comfortable with the right belief rather than the right doing. But the problem is the Bible wants us to live our lives the right way as well as believe the right thing. Now, you can't live your life the right way and not believe the right thing. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that the Bible says that we can believe the right thing and not live our lives the right way and be in big trouble. Let's just look in 3.14 here. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is, from, this is what Jesus says, listen, to the church there. I know all the things that you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. Based on the context here, we know that he's not critiquing them on what they believe, but rather he's critiquing them on their actions, what they do solely. We know from reading the rest of Scripture that they must have had their beliefs okay because otherwise there would be some type of critique on what they believe. By the way, there are other critiques in other churches about belief. But in this situation, it was not lack of belief or lack of quote-unquote faith that was the problem. What was the problem is that they didn't have any actions to go along with their faith. And by the way, their faith was atrophied because of lack of action. So the problem in Odyssey was not belief but in action. That God was looking at them, looking at what they were doing, and their walking was not matching with their talking. Their walking was not matching with what they say they believe. Now, let me give an example of the way that works in the Western church, especially, um, is that we sing songs on Sunday morning that says what? Jesus, I'm going to give my life to you. Whatever you call me to do, I'm going to do, right? I mean, I'm, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but... I could pick out some songs, get Ramir up here to sing a couple, right? But we sing songs, and you hear me speak, and we say, Oh, yes, God, I commit my life to you. But then, when we go out through the world, God sees our lives, and he sees us not living our lives with what we say. And therein lies the problem. And by the way, that was the problem in Laodicea, because the problem in Laodicea is that people's lives, their actions were not consistent with their words at all. Lack of action on our part makes Jesus want to vomit. Now, I, being, I am not a visual person. Do you guys know what that means? Do, do, you, do, you know, do you know what visual people are? How many of you are visual? Anybody's a visual person? Okay, so I am, because I'm not a visual person, sometimes I offend visual people. Uh, my wife is visual and I offend her all the time. So my immediate idea well, let me not tell you what my idea was first. Let me, let me, let me, <laughs> let me start back a little bit. Jesus, the Bible says, this, but this is Jesus speaking to the church in Laodicea. But since you are lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It doesn't say spit you out of my mouth. It says I'm going to puke you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. But if, in the English, they don't want to offend anybody. So they put spit. But the word there is puke. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, Pastor. Are you telling me the Bible says that if our actions don't line up with our beliefs, that it's making that it makes Jesus want to puke us out of his mouth? Is that what the Bible says? Yeah, actually, that's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. Now, here's the crazy thing. 
let's go back to the visual thing. I really wanted to put a picture of a guy puking. Don't go home and Google puke or vomit uh, if you are a visual person. But I did, you know. I, you know, every week I look for images that will fit the message. And, you know, I've, I Googled vomit. And let me tell you, there's a lot of great pictures on Google, right, about people doing that. But I thought it would be too visual for some of you. Some of you would be like, I don't know. Some of it would cause a bad reaction in some of you. Some of you, you know how when you smell vomit, you know, you, yeah, right, okay. All right, so for those of you that are not visual but uh, uh, smell people, there you go. But this is the thing. The Bible is being hyper-visual here because the Bible wants us to get a clue and realize that if our actions don't follow along with God, that it is disgusting to him. Now, I don't use that word lightly. Let's go back. Let's, you, let's go back, rewind five minutes here. If you get married to someone and you say I do to that person, and then that person the next day says, hey, I'm going to go to Sandals or, you know, here's a funny story. Let me, let me tell you a funny story. When I was in seminary, I had a friend of mine who was a really good friend. He's a pastor now in Virginia, pastors at large church. And um, he was a little younger than me, and he was getting married. He was, getting, he was engaged and getting ready to get married to his wife. I don't think I've ever told this story here before. He was getting ready to get married to his wife, and so he was looking around for honeymoon stuff, right? And he's not, it's not, a, not that he's, he's not a dumb guy at all, you know, but he got a bunch of stuff in, and he, you know, the magazines where they have the honeymoon packages, right? And I picked up one when I went in his room, and it said hedonism. Hedonism. And I looked at him, I said, Philip, do you know what this means? He said, no, I just thought it was the name of the resort. Does anybody know what hedonism means? It means doing whatever is pleasurable for pleasure's sake, which is why they had one guy and four girls on the cover, right? And it's a, how do I say this delicately? It's a uh, open marriage kind of resort. Do you know what I mean? Okay, right, I wouldn't go use that word, but right. It's, right, and he had no idea that that's what he subscribed to. If, by the way, when he realized what it was, he was what? Disgusted by that. He didn't want to take his beautiful bride to somewhere where the other men were going to be expected to have fun. God is equally disgusted with us when we live our lives saying that we are followers of Jesus and we don't do anything about it. I know this is not an easy thing to say, but it's, it's the truth. It makes, he's so disgusted, it makes him want to puke. In the same way that if our new spouse also abandoned us, it would make us sick to the core of our stomach and make us want to puke as well. So, the calling of the church in Laodicea, the calling for us today, is to be able to fully commit to God. Let's talk about this and break it down a little further. <clears throat> Why does Jesus talk about this hot water and cold water? Well, this has been the subject of a debate for thousands of years. But this is, we're pretty much at a consensus, which is this. Most scholars believe that Laodicea received water from nearby hot springs. And by the time it reached the city, it was neither hot nor cold, just lukewarm. And it was very yucky due to the mineral content that was in it. Let me explain what it was. Is that Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city. And we're going to talk about some of the wealth that it possessed in a minute. 
but it didn't have any, and it still doesn't have any natural source of water. It had to have an aqueduct to pump in the water. By the way, that's the aqueduct right there um, that, that, go, that went into the ancient city of Laodicea. You can see where the water would come through the pipe there. And so what happened was is they had to take the water from a nearby hot springs, which was considered a place of healing because it was the natural hot springs that bubbled up. Have you guys ever seen natural hot springs, though? Sometimes they look really yucky and silvery and stuff like that, and it's because there's a lot of mineral content in it. And so if you, got, if you went to the over there and you got in the hot springs, it was considered healing because it was really hot and it just felt good, I'm sure, especially on a cold day or a cold night. But if you took the water, and this is what they did, they took the water out of the hot spring, and if they wanted to drink it, they had to put it in a stone jar and it would cool at night and it would get very cold and it would make it palatable. But if you went straight to the aqueduct and you stuck your face to the aqueduct and got the water as it was streaming out, it was neither hot nor cold because it had only gone down the, the temperature to lukewarm across that distance. Scholars believe and understand because the aqueduct is no longer functioning, of course, it's just rubble. They believe that what happened here is that because it was lukewarm and because of the mineral content that was in it, that it tasted yucky at that temperature. That if it was hot, you didn't notice it, I guess, and when it's cold, maybe some of the minerals just were not, you know, they were at the bottom or whatever the case may be. But lukewarm and flowing through the aqueduct with the minerals all mixed up in it, it made it very, very yucky. And by the way, it stained, I don't have a picture of this, but the mineral content was so great, it stained the rocks around. So if you go there, you can still see the stains where the water stained the rocks. And they believe, by the way, the water was special because, of it, because it left a stain rather than most water doesn't leave a stain. So here's the thing. Jesus is not saying, you know, necessarily be hot because, you know, you want to be on fire. That's not what's meant here. What Jesus is saying is, is that this aqueduct, using an example of this, is that if we want to be valuable to the kingdom, we either have to be medicinal and hot, or we have to be cold and drinkable. But that being lukewarm is the worst of it all, because we're right there in the middle, and we don't go either way. The Bible would rather someone be very cold, and by very cold I don't mean, you know, uh, hate God, just cold or hot, but not lukewarm. To either be drinkable or be medicinal. Either metaphor is fine, but not to be so lukewarm and disgusting because of the minerals in there that you can't even drink it. Now, let's talk about this, what this means for us. I know all the things that you do that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. In other words, he's not saying just be hot. You know, cold is like against God, hot is for God. What he's saying is, is that there's value in the cold water that they got. There's value in the hot water they got. The key was to not be in the middle. The key was to not be in the middle and just be lukewarm. But since you are like lukewarm water that comes out of the aqueduct, neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you taste disgusting to me and you disgust me. You say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. By the way, this is the reason why they were lukewarm. Because they didn't need anything. And I cannot think of, and this is the reason why this passage stays very popular um, among all stripes of Christians here in the West, uh, no matter what the background is, because 
when we look at the level of affluence that we have here in America, it is in, in the West, it is especially easy for people to just say, I don't have anything. I don't need anything. So why would I bother to do anything for God? He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not going to give me anything I need. You know, if you're interested, um, I think that Western Europe is way worse than us in this way. Because if you've ever, if you know anything about Western Europe, and I'm going to try to make, not, this make this a, not make this a political statement, but the governments do everything for the people. I mean, I have friends of mine who live in the Netherlands and Sweden and other, in those, those countries, and basically the government tells you what you're going to do, like an actuarial table, until the day you die. This is the job you can have. I mean, literally, there are some governments that literally you have to pay money to move out of the job that you're in and into a different class. And so they take care of everything, everything. You pay like 80%, no, 70, well, I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and they pay like 75% of their salary goes to taxes. And then the government just does everything for you. And you don't, you don't get any options. It's just this is the way it is. And you know what? That's the reason why church attendance in those countries is like 2%. Because everyone just has everything they need. They don't need God. The government, their society, their wealth, whatever you want to use there, has become God for them. And they don't need anything. And it's sad. But the Bible tells us that we are missing the true abundance that God can give. By the way, it's not financial necessarily abundance, but the true abundance that God can give because we're accepting the complacency of this life. And the challenge for us is not to do that. So we must purchase from God. <laughs> That's a weird way of saying it, right? Um, here's what the Bible says. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. See, that's what happened. They were so wealthy, they didn't realize that, be, that their deeds revealed them, their actions revealed them as being blind and poor and naked and miserable. So I advise you to buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be ashamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. Let's talk about this here for a second. The Laodicean problem was complacency due to wealth. Now, here's the thing. Laodicea was an extremely, extremely wealthy city, okay? In fact, when one of the famous quotes about Laodicea in the ancient world was the fact that an earthquake, by the way, that area like ours was prone to earthquakes, and that area, uh, I'm sorry, Laodicea was damaged heavily by an earthquake um, one year, and um, around, the, around the time of the writing of the New Testament. And it was so badly damaged that it destroyed most of the buildings. Most of the other cities that had similar situations, they had to do what to rebuild? Well, they had to go and buy, I'm sorry, obtain loans from the government in Rome, from someone else, to be able to rebuild their city. But the Laodiceans were so wealthy that when the earthquake destroyed it that the Laodiceans themselves refused federal money well it'd be imperial money right they refused federal money and they rebuilt the city better than it was with opulent buildings they did it because they had so much wealth to spare that they thought you know what compared to the rest of the world at the time you know what we'll just build it better than it was and by the way, we're not going to use any federal money to do it with imperial money. 
that's how wealthy they were. And so, so I advise you to buy gold from me. So the thing is, the Laodiceans didn't buy gold from anyone because they already had all that they needed. They didn't need to buy gold from Caesar. They didn't need to borrow it. They already had all they needed. But God says to buy it from them, from, from him, gold that has been purified by fire. Of course, that's referring to the fact that what God provides is good. What we build for ourselves is not. Laodicean problem was complacency due to wealth. Material, ri- materially rich does not mean spiritually rich. Here's the problem the Laodiceans struggled with. It says, and also buy white garments from me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. Here's the weird thing. I, scholars don't under, still don't understand this passage, but here, I can tell you some information. The Laodiceans were famous for two things. I mean, well, they're famous for several things, but there's two things that they were famous for as well as several other things. Number one is that they were a textile center that specialized in black clothes. Okay? Number two, they were a cosmetic center that specialized in eye powder. Let me just read this again. I know that's going to sound weird, but it's true. So, also, buy white garments for me so you will not be shamed for your nakedness. And ointment for your eyes so you'll be able to see. Clearly, the, that the Bible here is referring to these industries that were popular in Laodicea. And the Bible's saying, listen, do not buy for yourself the black, fine, wool-spun clothes that come from Laodicea. That would be the equivalent of Prada or whatever manufactured today. I mean, this was high fashion at the time. Don't buy the ointment for the eyes that comes from Laodicea, which was believed to be a healing ointment. You rubbed it on your eyes, and it was believed to heal you. Don't buy that from the rich Laodiceans. Don't you and Laodicea buy that from your rich citizens. Buy the stuff from me, God, because I am the one who will provide you with things that is eternal. Not black wool, but white robes. Not questionable healing you know, uh, elixirs for the eyes, but real ointment that will heal you and will be a salve for your heart and your soul. Buy it, get it from me, God, rather than because of your wealth. The thing is that the Laodiceans didn't understand is that materially rich does not mean spiritually rich. And we struggle with this today, right? You know, I didn't put a picture up here because I couldn't find, there was one, but it was small and it'd be grainy. But I thought it captured this idea. There was some TV evangelist um, or church service, I don't know. And uh, I, I don't even know if it's a fake. That's why I didn't put it up there, because I saw it on a crazy website. And they had the, 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 the preacher, quote-unquote, was up there, you know, exhorting the people, and they had all these SUVs parked behind him. You know what I mean? And you could tell by the way it was looking that he was talking about you could have, you know, these this riches if you trust God. But that's not the gospel, and that's not the Bible. That is... Rich people patting themselves on the back and buying their own clothes and their own ointment from themselves and then saying that's what God wanted from the beginning. Let me say it another way. We in the church in the West are very guilty of allowing our material possessions and our money and our success and our comfortableness to be the driver in our relationship with God. To be the thing that defines our life. And yet God says that is not sufficient. And I will vomit you out of my mouth if you try to come to me and present your gifts to me, which is your money. 
and your possessions that you have kept for yourself. Instead of buying into earthly stuff, we need to buy into what God can do in our lives. Instead of trying to buy the things of this world and be happy with them, we need to buy into, we need to purchase what God is offering to us, which is not just eternal life, oh no, but abundant life by living according to His plan. The whole package which God offers. An abundant, meaningful life here with whatever time that we have left, eternal life in heaven that is built on our trust and our faith, and oh yes, even our actions in building up the kingdom. Not because we were powerful, because God was powerful. Not because we were the super faithful ones, but because God was faithful in us. The Western church, it's easy for us to type in the code of orthodoxy, the code of we've got the Bible figured out, but we skip over the work the actions and the events of our lives because we're convinced that we are okay because we're financially okay. Because we have a house, because we have a job, because we have these things that we are okay. But God says, no, it is not the case because you are purchasing your items from the wrong person. You don't purchase it from the mall. You don't purchase it from the textile. You don't purchase it from the cosmetics. You purchase it from me. So here's the thing. Our resources should go to things that really matter. This is, this is the issue, that we spend our time, which is our greatest resource, we spend it largely on things that won't matter. I won't do it here this morning, but I've showed you charts in the past that show what the average Christian in America does, right? How many hours they spend playing Xbox versus the number of hours that they spend you know, doing something for the kingdom, right? It's not even close. Number of hours we spend on vacation, versus the kingdom, not even close. Number of hours we go to work versus the kingdom, well, that is, I mean, you can't even chart that, right? It didn't even show up. Remember when I tried to chart that? Number of hours over a lifetime of a person of work versus what they do for the kingdom, on average, you, you, it doesn't even show up. It's .001 something, you know, um, percentage over a lifetime. And so the thing is, our resources, our time, our talents, our gifts, our everything should go towards building up the kingdom. Now, let's break it down a little farther. The, uh, one commentator, one, one theologian put this, and I thought this was really good. They were clothed in the finest earthly garb, the Laodiceans were, but were actually revealed or exposed as naked before God. Because, you know, we say in our society, the emperor has no clothes, and that's exactly what a lot of Western Christians are going to be when they stand before God. Is that they will bring their... their they will bring their middle classness. They will bring their upper classness to God and he will say, I don't want it because I don't need it. I don't need your houses. I don't need your money. I don't need your clothing because I don't need it. What I needed you to do in this life was to love people, to reach out to people, to serve people. That's what I asked you to do. I didn't ask you to buy 80 houses. I didn't ask you to build a business. I didn't ask you to do those things. You want to do those things on your time? Fine. But in my time, being my betrothed, this is what I need you to do. By the way, when my wife tells me, listen, honey, this week we really need to get the table, the, the play table that's in the living room moved over into Wyatt's bedroom. And I do what I'm going to do this week, and I work, and I work, and I work. And at the end of the week, the end of the week, I come to her and I say, hey, uh, 
how's it going? She's like, yeah, okay. And I say, well, listen, I built you a vanity. Great, but that's not what I asked you to do. You come to me with this vanity? I asked you to... No, she's not quite like that, right? <laughs> but what she, all she wanted me to do was move the table. That's what she wanted me to do. If I come to her with something else I've done, you know, it's okay, but it's not what she asked me to do. And to be honest with you, I don't feel like God asks us to do a lot. Yes, he asks us to give us his all. That's a lot, okay? But... Just to get from good to great is not really that. I mean, it is difficult, but it's not as difficult as we make it out to be. Because it starts with us just choosing to be committed. Choosing to go from good to great. Good is the enemy of great, as Jim Collins would say, right? To totally rip off his idea from his book. And lukewarmness is the enemy of hot and cold. And you know what part of the problem is? Our wealth and our complacency is the enemy of a vibrant spiritual life. It is. I know lots of people in third world situations, and they are vibrantly loving God. You know why? Because they don't have any wealth with which to hold them back. They just don't. They don't have any reason to stop. And so they do. Thirdly, we must take hold of victory. Listen, the Bible spends a lot of time talking about victory. I like talking about victory. I'm a little bit competitive. I like sports. I wore my jersey for a reason this morning, right? And uh, the Bible talks about victory in quite a few places, about us being victorious. If any word would fit Western American society, we all understand victory. But the problem is, is that most Christians do not pursue victory. They pursue goodness. They pursue averageness. They pursue less. The Bible says here... Oh, let me just mention. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. I know a lot of times you hear that and it's talking about, you know, if somebody becomes a Christian, but it's not talking about becoming a Christian. You read in context. What's it talking about? It's talking about people who claim to be Christians to be serious about God. That's what it's talking about. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Listen, how do we take hold of victory? The Bible tells us to turn away from complacency. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Hey, okay, so here's the thing. Um, in the old-timey days, you know, of church, there's this word called repent. You know? And um, the interesting thing is, is that if you watch people make fun of old-time religion, you know, the, the, the Bible thumper will repent, 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 right? And uh, the Bible here, in most trans, in, in what the word really means in original language, is for us to repent of following after wealth and turn back to God. The reason why I use that word here is because it's stronger than just sort of stop doing what you're doing. Because repent means to stop it and then go in the other direction. It's a U-turn. It means take a U-turn. And so the Bible here is telling us to take a U-turn away from complacency. Why? Because if we keep going towards complacency, complacency leads us to a place where we don't want to go. It's in the wrong direction. It's the wrong way. The Bible tells us to repent and move away from complacency. You know, uh, it's a big popular book right now. I haven't read it. I've just skimmed it and stolen quotes from it and stuff. But in his book, Crazy Love, Francis Chan talks about lukewarm Christians. And 
Um, I, I saw a couple examples of quotes from him, so I thought I'd put him up here for a second. Here's what uh, Francis says. He's in Southern California, by the way. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. Right? They feel it. They'll amen it. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll tear up. They'll raise their hand to it. But they do not act in the same way. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. Are you a lukewarm Christian? Let me give you another example. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed a part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, a section of their money, a section of their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. Does that sound like you? Let me give you one more. Lukewarm people do whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty, right? They buy their way out of it. They want to do the bare minimum to be good enough without it requiring too much of them. They ask, how much do I have to give instead of how much can I give? Is that you? Do you fit in that category? You know, the first one is really the best one. You know why? Because so many people that I talk to in churches, in, in all the churches I've passed, not, not BVC, but all of them, in all my experience, they, they see what I do as being radical. They see being a missionary as being radical. They see these things as being radical. They see the guy that, that leads a ministry as being radical. They see the person that will be, is willing to go hang door hangers at Easter as being radical. But that's not radical. That's just doing the minimums that God asks us to do. If you think other people are radical or doing more than you, that's a bad sign about you being hot or cold. Now, to quote another famous theologian, my wife, when I was uh, working on the message, I asked her her opinion, as I often will do, and she said the problem is that it's the being hot. I quoted her on this. The problem is that it's the being hot that makes you want to serve, not the serving that makes you hot. And so what happens is, is, that in, is that there's no amount of, of things you can do that will necessarily get you to the point where you leave lukewarmness. You have to just leave lukewarmness, and then those things will happen. You have to get out of the lukewarm spot, get out of the complacency, and then you will find that things will happen. But the average Christian wants to stay lukewarm and ask, well, God, how much do I have to give rather than how much I can give? They want to ask, how much do I have to do? Can I just do the minimum? And then God, you show me that you're going to give me more and then I'll do a little bit more. By the way, let me just suggest to you that does not work in marriage, does it? You can tell your wife, listen, I'm going to give you just a little bit, honey, and then when you put out more, then I'll put out. Right? Does that work in marriage? No! That doesn't work at all, right? And so our calling is to be hot. Our calling is to be cold. Our calling is not to be good, not to be lukewarm, but to serve God. We cement our victory with our acts of service. Real quickly here this morning, 
in my experience, only lukewarm people are uncommitted and uninvolved. When you look around, and when I look around, and I see people who are uncommitted and uninvolved at church or ministry, it is a sure sign that they are lukewarm. Now, a local church may not be your primary area of ministry. Maybe you work at Crisis Pregnancy. Maybe you go to Nicaragua and preach there. I don't know what this, I don't know what it is. That's between you and God. But anyone, anyone who is uncommitted and uninvolved at their local church, I find to be a sure sign of lukewarmness. Because if you're committed to God, you're naturally asking, what can I do here to help? What can I do there? You know, no, I, I'm not going to use an example of myself. Um, you, you know, let me just say that um, I'm just going to repeat it because I'm, I, I don't want to use that example. But um, when you're, you know, if you go away on vacation, if you're lukewarm, you're like, I'm on vacation. I don't need to go to church. But someone who is hot or cold, when they go away on vacation and they visit church, they're like, hey, I'm here. If you need something to help, I'll help whatever. They go away for a couple weeks, I'm there. I'll do it. The hot or cold Christian, the follower of Jesus who's hot or cold, asks, what more can I do to serve? Not, I can't do any more to serve. So here's the question this morning. The question is, is are you willing to be hot or cold? Or do you want to face the reality that if you stay in complacency, that God may spit you out of his mouth in disgust. Do you want to be hot or cold, or do you want to just be in the middle? Because being in the middle don't taste very good. It ain't very good. It's not much fun. It's not much fun for the other people either. But being hot, being cold, that's where it really matters. Let's pray. God, we just come before you this morning, Lord, and we just ask that everyone here at BBC, myself, everyone, that we would be hot, we would be cold, that we would be committed to you, that we would not satisfy with lukewarmness, but that, God, that we would, above all else, we would take hold of your call in our lives to do what you want us to do. That, God, we would not ask, what do I have to do? What are the minimums? But we would ask, what is the greatest thing that I can do for, for you, God, in my life? What are the things that you have called me to do? God, may our church never hold anyone back from service. Lord, may we never hold anyone back from achieving and being victorious, Father. Lord, may we only encourage and bless those who seek to do that. Father, may you help us to achieve and be victorious for you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name.